All right, welcome to Sedaris. Go ahead and grab a seat. If you haven't figured out already, we're going to be talking a little bit about employment, which is so fun. Excited to talk about employment today. My name is Dave, one of the pastors here. Glad you're with us on this fine March evening. If you weren't here with us last week, we talked about gospel marriage, and I just want to reiterate, obviously not everything about marriage can be talked about in one night, so feel free to email me or ask me to coffee if you have any questions about how this plays out in reality, or if there were parts of gospel marriage that, uh, that you have questions about that we didn't get to talk about last week. Obviously, that's an uh, important topic and one that uh, uh, stirs up a lot of questions, so again, don't hesitate to ask anything about that. I uh, also just want to report one of our, uh, actually this week, two of our own brothers and sisters were in bicycling accidents. One is Janelle, and she's here today, and so she is doing doing well, but we'll keep praying for her and for any lingering effects, uh, uh, riding her bicycle. And also uh, Cody Hopkins was also uh, hit by a car while riding his bicycle. And uh, many of you have visited him. I was able to visit him yesterday, and he is recovering well, well, um, had a punctured lung and a lacerated spleen and eight broken ribs and a broken collarbone. So continue to pray for him. Uh, he's going to be, uh, I think, headed uh, to his hometown of Spokane for at least a week or so to recover. So we'll just continue to pray for him, but uh, we praise God that, that both of our uh, brother and our sister uh, are with us and recovering. So um, if you would, let's just pray and ask God to be with us as we study his word. Father God, we, we come before you tonight and we come with hands open as we expect to receive from your word uh, truth, uh, truth that stirs us and moves us towards the gospel life. We pray, Father, that uh, we would have eyes and ears to hear what it is you have to say to us tonight, uh, that we might be empowered and emboldened and given patience and perseverance and whatever our work situation and life situation is, Father. We pray for Cody, that you would continue to heal his body, God, and uh, be with him, and, and through this pain and suffering that he might uh, understand the gospel, the cross of Christ, and that he might come to new life and understand the resurrection. We pray for our sister Janelle as, as well, that her injuries would continue to heal, Father. And we pray for those drivers, Lord, that... Um, whatever guilt they may feel, Lord, that they would turn uh, to you and, and ask for forgiveness and experience your, uh, your divine forgiveness in their life. So we, we give tonight to you in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, you can pray as well uh, for my family this week. This week's always a big week for us. Uh, March 17th every year is the anniversary of my sister's uh, bicycle accident. Um, in which she was taken home to be with the Lord. So this will be the 10-year anniversary for that. And it feels like a big one and a heavy one. And 
uh, was stirred up again to those thoughts, of course, this week as, as two of our own were in accidents. So we just be praying for our family. I'd appreciate that. It's always a hard uh, time of year, but uh, we praise God that, that my sister Kim is with the Lord and, and much of what we're experiencing has come out of that rubble. So I'd appreciate prayers as well. But we're talking about employment today and some other things. So it's going to be exciting. And so just to, I mean, if you just want to say turn on a dime, I'm about to just really turn on a dime here from some heavy stuff to some light stuff because I want to share a few stories with you about what I'd call the at least I'm better than them employees of the world, okay? So I'm not better than all employees, just I'm, at least I'm better than these. Let me just tell you a couple stories. These are true stories. Uh, it was at a Delaware daycare center that three employees were arrested after they tried to make the toddlers fight for their own amusement. The workers were discovered when a video of their toddler fight club uh, surfaced on YouTube, and the video captures audio of one of the employees saying this, no pinching, only punching. Okay. <laughs> At least I'm better than them. So... The second character uh, is really struggling as an employee. You know you're in trouble when you get fired from Al-Qaeda. This is what happened to the Algerian terrorist named Mokhtar, who was fired by the organization after he failed to attend work meetings, return work phone calls, and failed to file the required monthly expense reports. To top it off, they said that at one point, Mokhtar didn't charge enough ransom for a hostage. <laughs> at least, I'm better than them. And to answer your question about this next terrible employee, yes, this story did happen at a Waffle House. Anybody <laughs> love the Waffle House? Yeah, if you're from the South, you love the Waffle House. And this isn't the only sad, sad story of woe that has happened at the Waffle House. This is just one of them. 2016, a waitress was arrested for drugging a coworker, uh, drugging a coworker's drink with meth. Who knew you could even do that? Putting uh, him into a coma. At the time of her arrest, she didn't give a reason for her terrible revenge plan. Chances are, in my opinion, that she accidentally. Uh, or that he accidentally stole a beverage that she had meant to make for herself, okay? That's my, that's not, we don't know that, that's just what I think. But don't you fret. Don't you worry about this, this woman. Um, she only had to walk about three blocks to find her next new employer, the Waffle House. So, <laughs> you only get that if you're from the South. But that's to my friends from down under. Okay, so... The last terrible employee's name was Joaquin Garcia, not to be mistaken for my doppelganger, Joaquin Phoenix. Joaquin might be <laughs> the worst waste management, uh, the worst wastewater treatment supervisor in the world, but he's also the best slacker who has ever lived. When, uh, in, two, uh, in 2016, he received uh, an award for 20 years of service. But it was not until the higher-ups went to deliver his award that they realized that Joaquin had been skipping out on work for the past six years. At least I'm better 
than them. But to be honest, we've all fallen short of the perfection of gospel employeeism, and that's what we'll study today. So it's best to just own the stories in which we've uh, failed to live out the gospel in our employment. Uh, in fact, my first grown-up job, I'll, tell, I'll just expose myself here, my first grown-up job, I was an intern at Deloitte during my master's program through the UW, and uh, for some reason, they sent me out to a client by myself, and I was just an intern. I had no idea what I was doing. And the amazing thing, you don't always get this, they gave me my own office. And in this office was just a desk, nice big wooden desk. And I'd gone out to lunch um, by myself and <laughs> had a nice big lunch. And I didn't have a lot of great directive from my supervisor who was not there. And I came back from lunch and I sat behind this nice big desk. And, well, you know, the eyes started to get a little weighty. And the next thing you know, somebody's knocking on the door, and I had no idea how long I'd been asleep. Turns out it was about three hours. <laughs> <laughs> and they walked in, how's it going? It's going great, <laughs> feel great. Um, they're like, okay, we're all leaving for the day, <laughs> you know, feel free to wrap it up. And, you know, accountants, we like to pretend we're hard workers, so I was like, well, I'll just give it a few more minutes here, got a lot going on. So... That's my story of not-so-perfect employment, but here's the deal. We can all get better, and I've gotten better. I've gotten better. I keep those naps to about an hour now, which is nice. So, if you've got a Bible, would you turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6? Uh, we've only got, after this week, one more week in Ephesians, and we have loved our time there. So... This week we're going to be in the first half of chapter 6, and next week in the second half, half of chapter 6, Ephesians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Ephesus, which is in Asia Minor, trying to teach them how the gospel, the cosmic plans of God, come into the everyday life of the follower of Jesus. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, we're glad that you're here considering him. Um, you're not called necessarily to the standard of, that we'll read of today, but uh, my hope would be that you'd, you'd see something admirable in it, something uh, to look up to, maybe something that you've felt deep down is a part of the way people should be and act, and, and maybe this gives you some context for that. We're so glad that you're here considering Jesus with us and his gospel of redemptive grace. So let me read, starting in verse 1, chapter 6 of Ephesians. It says this, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, bond servants, or it might say slaves in your translation, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, 
but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. Masters, do the same to them, and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. Now, there's four groups of people that we see in this, and we'll touch on each of them as we go along here. The first is children, the second, fathers, and you could add in, and mothers. Then we have slaves, or in our context, that would be employees. Then we have masters, or bosses, managers, executives. So we're going to look at each of these. But there's two complementing ideas that I just need to highlight that you'll see come out in each of these categories. Uh, the first is what I'd call natural justice, which is, for instance, with children obeying their parents. This is something that's written on all the hearts of all humanity, not just Christians. There's this understanding that parents need to be parents and kids need to be kids and and when that happens in the right way, it's actually for the good of the children. So it'd be like natural justice. And it hap happens in some way with each of these categories. And for instance, with uh, parents and children, what this natural law or natural justice, which is written on all of our hearts, what it represents is ultimately, I think, our relationship with God. So we understand that there is in the world hierarchy if we understand that there is a God. Now the second idea, and this is truly unique to the gospel, call this a gospel idea, is what I call delegated authority. It goes like this. Parents get their authority from God. Masters get their authority from God. Governments get their authority from God. And you see this throughout Scripture and you see this in this passage that although there is this hierarchy above it all is God himself and he delegates his authority in the world. So you could say this, therefore to honor or obey your parents, your masters, your government is to honor God because God has delegated his authority in those ways. And, and sometimes you wonder well, why would he delegate to these masters? Or these governments? Well, we get to some point where we say, I don't know. I don't understand that in the grand scheme of God's master design. But we know that if he did not want that, he could remove them from that place of authority. So it's an important understanding as we go through this text today. So let's take a look first at gospel children. It says this, children, obey your parents in the Lord. For this is right. Honor, honor your father and your mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Here's what's going on. This commandment to obey your parents. And remember what we said last week. This word, this verb obey is different than the verb that he gives to wives, which is submit. 
Obey is not a if you want to. Obey is you have to. So it's actually a, a sterner word. We talked about submission is a voluntary act to come underneath the leadership. This is not the same. This is you must obey your parents. And what, what Paul is saying is when you do this, it goes well for you. And what I love about this is it says it's sealed with a promise, not with a threat. You see that? He's saying when you live this way, children, and obey your parents, the promise is good things will come. Not you better do this or else. I love that about God's promises, about God's design, is that he doesn't threaten us with his design. He says if you want the best, if you want the best kind of marriage, the best kind of family, the best kind of corporation, you'll do it this way. And the promise is it will go well. And so this promise for prosperity and a long life, it's probably not geared towards the individual per se, but he's talking about this as a communal promise. Meaning, if you have a society, if you have a social structure built upon the stability of the family in which children honor their parents, the promise is it will go well for that society. I think this is true and has proven itself out over the centuries where there are strong families, there are strong societies. So here's a common question that, that people might hear about the child-parent relationship because most of us aren't in junior high anymore. Some of us might be. So you gotta listen real close here. Uh, here's the deal. When do I get to stop obeying my parents? It's a great question. And the answer is, there is a time when you stop obeying your parents. And the time for that is actually dictated by the cultural customs of the society in which you live, to a degree. So for instance, in many Asian cultures, the way in which the family is structured creates longer times of, of parents and kids living together. So it might look a little bit different than in a, a classic Western culture. And so what, what you're wanting to do is not uh, offend the cultural context in which you live. You're trying to honor it up to a point. And often that point is when you become married and you leave your father and your mother and you cling to your wife or your husband. That's probably the best answer I can give you to when you stop obeying your parents and when you start your own family. Now, of course that doesn't mean that you just forget about your parents. The change is you go from obeying to honoring. So even after you're married, even after you start your own family, you must, for the rest of your life, continue to honor your father and your mother and one of the best ways to do this, there's lots of ways to do this and that we should be doing this, but one of the best ways is to continue to seek their wisdom throughout the rest of your life. Continue to humble yourself and seek their wisdom, asking them for advice, but honoring looks different than obeying. So, that's all I'm going to say about uh, being a child, uh, but now I want to turn to what does it look like 
to be a gospel father. Read with me in verse 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So what does it mean to be a gospel father, a gospel parent? I think there is a unique aspect or responsibility put upon the father, but the parents together parent their kids. So much of what I say is to parents together. I might have a few words for the fathers at the end. Watch out, music stand. Okay, here we go. If you were here last week, you should be laughing. Think about it for a sec. Okay. What is our parental responsibility? Well, actually what we see is this is a truly revolutionary idea. And it's unique to the gospel family. In fact, this might be the most shocking piece of information that Paul gives us about this new life we live in Christ. And here's why. Because for Roman fathers in the Greco-Roman world, fathers were given complete authority to do whatever they want. They had unlimited control over their family members like they were the owners of them. In fact, Roman fathers, if they decided to, could sell their children or their wives into slavery. They could also, if they wanted to, have them jailed or even executed. And so to come in here, and this is what's hard for us to hear because we're on the tail end of 2,000 years of biblical idea of parenting, we can't understand how truly revolutionary this idea when Paul says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. What? I have no responsibility to my children. They have responsibility to me. No, you have responsibility to them. You have a responsibility not to provoke them to anger. So if they're angry, it's not just that they're a bad kid. Maybe there's something about the way you're parenting them that is not gospel worthy. So gospel fathers do not equal Roman fathers because we are called to love our children as God the Father loves us. And the gospel informs us that the way he loves us is by sacrificing that of greatest value for our well-being. See how revolutionary that idea is? Just turns everything upside down. It's fathers, Paul's saying, don't use your authority for yourself, but use it for your family. What he's saying is, you are the Lord to them. You act as Lord to them, giving them everything that the Lord wants to give to them, including proper discipline and instruction. And if they're not getting it from you, they're not getting it. This perhaps, this relationship of fathers and mothers and children is perhaps the clearest picture of what it means to be an image bearer of God. We truly get to be Lord to them and raise them up as God raises us up. Here's the problem. Most fathers 
in particular are terrible at this. Most fathers step out of the way and let the mother do all the spiritual raising of the children. That's not okay. Because at the end of the day, it's the father to whom God comes to and says, you are responsible for your children. How did it go? And like I said last week, men, you have to start now, even before you have children, learning what it means to be a gospel father. Trust me, if you wait until you're at the hospital and the baby comes out, you will not have the time, energy, or resource to figure this out. You have to start figuring it out right now. What does it mean to be a gospel father? And so I tell this to guys all the time, and I'll tell it to you. One of the reasons you start considering the truths of Jesus Christ and the gospel of redemptive grace right now and you ask all the questions, and you press in, and you get into community, and you read the Word of God, and you read great authors, even authors about parenting, is because one day your kid's going to ask you, is there a God? Everyone at school is saying there's not. Is Jesus Christ the Son of God? And if you think that just taking them to Sunday school is enough, you're lying to yourself. And there's been generation after generation of Christian men in particular who have thought, well, I'll just bring them to church. And the youth pastor will figure it out, and it doesn't work. And we're living in a world that proves that out. Men, you have to figure out what is true, what is right, what is good, what is real, and you have to develop in yourself a confidence to be able to discipline and instruct your children in the fear of the Lord. And it's not enough just to say, well, I want them to decide for themselves. Paul says, no way. That's your job given to you by God the Father delegated authority from God the Father. And if you're not doing that job, you're spitting in the face of the authority God's given you. Mothers, same is true for you. I just feel like you guys have done a better job than most men. Third category. Bond servants or slaves. course we don't have slavery as they did in ancient Rome or even at times in our own country but everything that he's about to say here I think fits perfectly well in the context of corporate America in the context of small business even in the context of being a student so if you have ever been or ever want to be an employee this is for you so let's read it again Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service or people pleasing, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. 
knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is slave or free. Look at how Christ-centered this command is. Look at how Christ-centered. He says, uh, he says, the reason you do it, because you do it as you would to Christ. He says you do it as servants of Christ. He says you do it as to the Lord, because you'll receive back from the Lord. So ultimately, what he's saying is, the work that you're doing is not to your earthly boss, it's not for your earthly co-workers, it's not for your earthly professor, you're doing all that you do for Christ himself. And so, I promise you this, if you learn to be a gospel worker, if you learn to work like Paul says right here in these verses, it will liberate you from the small horizons that so many of us have, which is people-pleasing. Pleasing our boss, pleasing our coworkers, And it will open up and you'll have new eyes to see these vast horizons, which is Christ-pleasing. And I'll tell you what, through your work, no matter how mundane it is, no matter how repetitive, no matter how painful or dreary, or even if it's exploitive to some degree, you can find joy in your work because you're not doing it for man, you're doing it for Christ. That's what I want for us. I want a kitchen worker to cook a meal as if Jesus Christ were the one sitting at the table receiving it. I want the maid who cleans the hotel room to do it as if Jesus Christ is coming to visit. I want the pediatric nurse to care for the patient as if that patient were the child of Jesus and Jesus walks into the room and says, how's my child doing? I want doctors to have compassion for each patient as if it was Jesus Christ laying on that table. I want teachers to lovingly address each student as if the parent walking into that parent-teacher conference was Jesus himself. Doesn't matter if you're a miner, an industry worker, even if you're an accountant, yes, even if you're an accountant, which I was, you make the best spreadsheet unto the Lord. You want him to look at that spreadsheet and say, wow, very well color-coded. I can follow this. Unbelievable. Telemarketers. Have you ever seen that Discovery credit card commercial? where the person is actually talking to themselves. I want you to think about Jesus on the other end buying a credit card. Not sure. <laughs> that guy has no debt, but you're not going to make any money off of him, but still sell him a credit card. Baristas. Oh, yeah. JC loves the Java. Students. As if Jesus were your teacher. As if Jesus were your teacher. Do you imagine? Because it's actually God who is giving you the opportunity to expand your mind. God is giving you the opportunity to learn and receive knowledge that most of the world doesn't have. So don't take that for granted. Don't throw it away. Jesus is your teacher. So this is how it looks when your boss walks up to the cubicle 
walks up to your desk, walks in the door. Paul says, that's Jesus to you. Treat them with the respect that you would if Jesus were standing in front of you. If this doesn't feel really, really hard, then you're not understanding what I'm saying. This is really, really hard, but this is what Paul says. It's as if Jesus is that boss that you hate, that's lazy, that's mean, but you're supposed to treat them as you would if Jesus were standing there. Here's what he says. He says, you are supposed to obey them with fear and trembling. Now, what does he mean by that? It's not that you're cringing, you're shrinking in servitude. That's not what these words would have evoked to the people Paul was writing to. What it would have evoked and what it means is you need to have reverence for them. You need to reverently acknowledge their authority in your life because that authority was given to them by God. It's hard stuff. You say, God, why did you give me that boss? We don't know. But Paul tells us God gave him that authority over you, so you need to reverently acknowledge his authority. And so this changes, if you do that, how you will act. It says that you will act from the heart. Here's what this means. It means that you will not work with ulterior motives. Now, this doesn't mean that you don't work in order to advance your career, but do not work to go behind the boss's back to try to usurp his power over you. Do it from the heart. Care about your work. Care about doing a good job. Do not do it with hypocrisy. Do not only do it, he says. Don't just give eye service. Paul actually made up this word. You don't find it in any other Greek before here. And what he's saying is, don't just do it when the boss is watching you and then flip back and don't work very hard when the boss leaves. Yeah? Yeah, I've done that. I do that still. And I'm my own boss. It's terrible. <laughs> I'm, extra, I'm extra depraved. Okay. Here's what it also means. This is, this is something that's going to hit you home. Well, it's going to hit you in the gut. Even as a renter, which means the authority is your landlord. Who owns the house, you don't own it, or you don't own that rental car, and you're supposed to treat it as if it's your own or if it's God's. Yeah. If you rent, that's tough, because you're pissed that you're paying so much money, and yet you're supposed to treat that house like it's Jesus' house. Treat that rental car like it's Jesus. But that's the time I get to just see if I can spin out the tail, and just want to see how fast this will accelerate or no that's Jesus car even if you're unpaid you're supposed to work as if you're working for the Lord you say well I do a good job as long as I get paid no even if you're not paid This would be the most extreme forms of slavery. 
Even if you're not getting paid or fed, you're supposed to work as unto the Lord. That means in jobs that God gives you in the church that are volunteer positions, you should seek an excellence as if you were getting paid, but even more importantly than that, as if Jesus Christ were asking you to do it. They say, like, I'd do a great job if I was getting paid should do the exact same job whether you're getting paid or not paid it's hard stuff because you're doing it not for the money not for the accolades not for the promotion you're doing it for the Lord who has put that job in front of you and he says do good work because it reflects upon me you're my people and then he says this he says and you will receive it back You will receive it back. What does he mean by this? Well, he's not saying that for everything you do right here and right now, you will receive a reward equal to the work that you put in. He's not saying that. But here's the great promise of this. He's saying that even if your boss totally steals the credit, totally takes you for granted, the Lord sees what you do. And one day you will be rewarded for what you do. Might not come in this life, but the Lord never misses the way you work. Isn't that great news? Isn't that a great promise? Because so often we're taken for granted. People don't know us. They don't acknowledge the work that we're doing. We're underappreciated. The Lord always sees the work that we do. And He will give it back to us one day. I love, love these promises. Okay. On to the final category here, which is masters. You can think of bosses, managers, executives, business owners, colonels in the army, generals, presidents. You could, you could just go on and on. Anybody that holds a position of authority, this, again, is revolutionary. Here's what Paul says. All right, masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening knowing that he who is in heaven is both their master and yours, and that there is no partiality with him. Here's what Paul is saying. And I'm actually going to just give you a, a quick background on slavery of the time. But about one-third of the population were slaves in Paul's day. Now, these weren't the same kind of of slaves as you might think in the American South in the 1800s, but they are nonetheless slaves who did have a chance to earn their freedom, and many of them did, but they were still often abused, taken advantage of, sexually mistreated, treated as subhuman, even though they did have a, that's why some translations say bond servant. It was a bit of indentured servitude, but, but there wasn't a racial component at all. There were people from every race, ethnicity in the Mediterranean world from, from all nations could become slaves or often became slaves. And so this was a real issue for them. And the things that Paul said would have been revolutionary 
that you are to treat them in the same way. This is what we might call, and you see Paul say it earlier in Ephesians chapter 5, mutual submission. And what he's saying is that the relationship is reciprocal, even though it's not symmetrical. So he's saying that masters, you have a responsibility to, an obligation to your slaves, even though they are subordinate to you. This is a truly revolutionary gospel idea, and this would have shocked slave owners, and to be honest, it should and will continue to shock corporate officers, not just to be responsible to their shareholders, but also to be responsible to their employees, as unto the Lord. And as it often is today, many slave owners, they were tyrants, they were abusive, and they did use threats to keep people in line. Threats of beatings, as I said, sexual harassment, and even taking slaves away from their families. That stuff still happens in the business world in America. People use threats, managers use threats to keep their employees in line. I'm going to send you on a four-week out-of-town visit if you don't do what I say. I'm going to work you 12 hours a day. I'm going to use my power over you to threaten you into the way I want you to work. And Paul says, stop doing that. Stop doing that. Now, this is revolutionary, and it shows again how the gospel changes everything, even slavery, even the master-slave relationship, even the boss-employee relationship, flips it on its head. And some people will ask, and it's important just to say, Paul is not advocating slavery here. He's not saying that slavery is a good thing. He's just acknowledging that it is a part of the world in which he lives. So what you don't see him doing here as he did in gospel marriage is using any theological grounding for slavery. He's simply acknowledging that in the socio-cultural structure of the day, whether it's good or it's bad, whether it's oppressive or gives freedom, whether it's just or unjust, there is a way for people who follow Jesus to live out the gospel in their lives and in this instance, in their working life. And so because the gospel changes everything, here's what the gospel does with this issue of slavery. This is how the gospel allows this type of mutual submission to work even between a master and a slave. This is what the gospel does. Read again with me in verse 9. It says this. Masters, do the same. Stop your threatening. Now, here's why he says this is why. Knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no, no partiality in him. 
When we understand the gospel of Jesus Christ, when we understand that we are all sinners and we are all slaves to sin, as the book of Romans tells us and elsewhere, that we are all under the yoke of sin until Christ frees us from that, we are brought to an even playing field. Those who are high in the social structure of the day are brought down and humbled. Those who are low are raised up and told that they are worthy and worth something. And all of this because Jesus Christ came himself to earth not to be served, but to serve. And Jesus himself came and paid the penalty for our sin. So Romans also tells us that the wages of sin is death. And Jesus Christ paid those wages for us. And then, as a result, wiped the slate clean. That we all now are equal at the foot of the cross. See how that works? Because... We are no longer slaves to sin. Now, Paul says, you can go and be a servant of God, a servant of Christ. Then he says this. He says, because in God's eyes, everyone is equal. There's no partiality. Both master and slave, their master is in heaven, and his name is Jesus. And God is overall as everyone's judge. And so Christ becomes that common mediator. Nothing else you do, not your goodness, not your education, not your social status, not your job title, saves you. Only Jesus does. And so we are all equal. And the result of this is that we are all brothers. Boss and employee, if they are Christian, are brothers. Slave and masters, if they are both Christian, are now brothers. We are all brothers and sisters in Christ. And if you turn and you, and you looked at the book of Philemon, you would see a beautiful picture of this happening where Paul tells Philemon, who was a slave master, whose slave had run away and met Paul and became a Christian, and now Paul is sending him back to Philemon says, hey, Take him in, not as a slave, but as a brother. That's the way the gospel works. So when we are both in Christ, we are siblings, even while we live out our differing stations in this life. Okay? It doesn't mean that everyone takes on the same job title. It just means that in God's eyes, we are equal, and so we're worthy of mutual respect. And to live out these stations as unto the Lord will then become a witness to the truth that nothing happens outside of God's sovereign plan and control. This plan that he's been preparing before the beginning of the world and this plan that is for the good purposes of us all. We recognize that and we witness that through the submission to the authority that God's placed in our life. And it's really, really hard 
but it brings glory to our God and to our Savior Jesus. So I want us to go into the world. I want us to be great employees, the best employees, in fact, that this city has. I want us to be the best bosses that this city has. I want us to be the best parents that this city has and the best children that this city has. Knowing that every authority sits underneath Jesus. And so we do not have to fear because every authority is under him. And so that when we go out into the world and we see our bosses and our coworkers, we see our parents, we see their face and we see the face of Jesus looking at us and we respond to him. And when we do, I guarantee you it will bring glory to the name of Jesus, that Jesus' name will be lifted on high as people wonder, why is it that all my best employees follow this person named Jesus? Would you pray with me? Father God, we thank you for this truth, this very, very difficult truth that you have put authorities in our life for our good and for the purposes of your plan. We pray, God, that you would give us the courage to be the best employees that we can to work as unto the Lord, to view those we work with and for and to as if Jesus himself were sitting right there. Give us those eyes to do that well, not for our own glory, but for the glory of your son, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.